On this episode of the Trade Busters podcast, I'm going to be playing a earlier recording of a chat that I had with David Jaffe. You guys might know David from his website, beststockstrategy.com, and he also runs a YouTube channel. And what happened was David reached out to me because he had been referred by one of the members of the Trade Busters Discord, Mike Hoffman, uh, who had referred David to my podcast, and he had listened to it and was interested in you know, just chatting and about various topics just to kind of add value to both of our audiences. So in the call, uh, you'll hear we're going to talk about different topics from backtesting to rolling, um, you know, rolling strategies and also hedging. And again, just kind of different topics. And I thought it'd be a good idea at the time to have, you know, the two of us, uh, you know, just bounce ideas and talk from our sides our own perspectives you know sometimes we may agree from a different topic sometimes we might not agree or sometimes we might even kind of change our minds after hearing what the other person has to say um, so before we get to the chat uh, just a quick reminder as always if you guys enjoy this episode please take a moment to rate review and subscribe to the podcast you can also visit my trading page at www.thetradebusters.com where you will find all of the strategy mechanics and trade logs as well as various essays I have written and other podcasts I recommend. Finally, you can follow me on Twitter at The Trade Buster. That's it for now. Without further ado, on to our chat. Hi, I'm David Jaffe. I have a YouTube channel, youtube.com slash beststockstrategy and a website, beststockstrategy.com. Hey, David Sun here, host of The Trade Busters podcast. Um, follow me on Twitter at the Trade Buster. I think most of my followers know me. And uh, just a quick thing, um, one of the guys on my Discord, Mike, uh, I think uh, David, he knew you from before, right? Had done a couple interviews, and uh, he kind of connected us. I think he introduced you to my podcast, and I think you just figured, uh, be cool to connect with someone like-minded. Maybe just chat options, you know, things we agree on, things we maybe don't just don't agree on. Just kind of add value to both our listeners. Um, is that kind of how how this all got started? Yeah, definitely. I um so this call will be around 45 minutes and our main objective is to add as much value as possible and just to give the viewers something something to think about and to ponder. So I think that really without further ado we should get started in order to maximize time. Yeah, let's do it. So the first topic is what are your thoughts regarding the value of persistent hedges? versus something like selling further out of the money puts and trading small so i kind of see that as as two different things hedging is you know you can talk about proactive or reactive you know proactive hedging which is i think what you're talking about in terms of persistent is kind of buying you know out of the money puts uh, on the market call options on vix whatever it is and i think there's a place for that uh, it kind of depends on overall how large you're trading to begin with which you kind of alluded to what kind of strategies, what are you protecting? Like, do you, are you doing just options? Do you have some kind of core portfolio? Do you have a buy and hold component where you don't have any kind of risk mitigation? And so in those cases, you might need some kind of persistent hedge to, you know, at least cut the drawdown a bit, right? If, if things get really wild. And also have to think about what kind of hedging, talking about tail risk, or you're trying to just hedge like a 5% run of the mill in a little blip, small correction, right? Because obviously, if you're trying to hedge something that's going to happen pretty frequently, it's going to cost you a lot. You might not get that much bang for the buck. Tail risk, you know, once in a decade, 20 year, you know, 20%, 30% crashes, that's 
kind of more extreme. And usually I only look for persistent hedges to be based on tail events, because if you're trying to just hedge every bump in the road, right, you're going to kind of overspend a lot. Um, so you know, see what kind of your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I, I kind of sometimes I go back and forth. Like on the one hand, I think that trading spreads is really good because the spreads inherently protect you against the volatility expansion. In my opinion, that's the primary advantage. You have both the capital efficiency benefit of trading a spread, and then you also have the volatility expansion protection. I do sometimes, though, when I speak to some of my friends who use um, strategies where like they'll buy too farther out of the money long put options in order to protect against tail risk. My issue with that is that they're using backtesting and then they're going based upon volatility expansion. But it's really hard to predict volatility expansion based upon a decline in the S&P. So for example, if you take something like, I think it was uh, Monday, February 5th, 2019, mm -hmm. where the S&P was down around 100. So now it would be down, let's say like 150. But at that time, the VIX spiked from, I think like 15 to about like over 50. And then you had a situation even yesterday which was January 24th, 2022, where at one point um, the S&P was down tremendously, yet even so the VIX, I think, got to a high of about like 39. So I think that obviously like having, like always keeping it in the back of your mind that you can have a high win rate, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to be profitable long-term. But I'm not certain that having persistent hedges and always being concerned about something that has a low probability, like a low probability event is the best way to trade. I think that you can reduce drawdowns by either using spreads or going further out of the money or trying to use smaller amounts of capital, especially during times when volatility is low, like certain things like that. Those are my, my thoughts regarding it. Yeah, a small amount of capital. I think sizing is always the first line of defense. And you know what you mentioned about the buying the two out of the money puts, that's basically a back ratio. And you're right, you can't predict volatility and what's going to occur. And so the first line of defense is having risk management either via size or having stops or some kind of adjustment. Though the back ratio approach and this kind of tail risk hedging is really for those kind of emergency where you don't think of it, right? So if you have, uh, if you wake up and you know there's a nuclear bomb or something, the market's down, you know, twenty percent. Obviously, with circuit breakers, that's pretty unlikely, you know. But some kind of unforeseen event, and whether or not you need this kind of, you know, we call it level two. Um, that's why I call it the kind of like black swan risk. Really, is up to just your base size. Right? If you're trading cash secured or very low notional. Um, very unlikely you're going to blow up even with a pretty big event. But as you, you know, with options is leverage, right? So as you want to increase your target return, increase your sizing, you want to push the limits of your account a little bit more. Under normal circumstances, you can still control that, like you said, with buying power, with what stops, risk management. But there comes to be a point where the sizing is, if there was an uncontrollable event, you'd risk a blow up. And those are the times when you want that secondary factor to kick in. Those are the times when that back ratio, the volatility event is going to happen. So it really depends on your approach and your kind of sizing to begin with and determining whether or not you need that second piece. So it's not a one size fits all. 
Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's um, it's malleable. It's not. There's no definitive answer here, and we'll touch upon this later. But at the same time, I do think that it's definitely valuable to give up some of your returns in order to decrease the volatility of your returns because the stress component of seeing losses and also not being able to sleep at night or being concerned by constantly monitoring the futures market, that is something that you have to take into account. So if it costs you a little bit of money in order to mitigate that downside risk, then I definitely think that it's advantageous, even if it means that over the long term, you're going to sacrifice a little bit of profit. Makes sense. The, um, the second thing is I wanted your thoughts on, on backtesting and where you see it fits in um, in order to allow people to be consistently profitable and to optimize their trading strategy. So with backtesting, the, the biggest thing is it gives you context, but it's not necessarily going to give you that holy grail strategy because there comes a fine line between testing to see kind of the characteristics and behavior of a strategy and where the backtesting becomes the strategy, as in you plug in 20 different inputs, filters, and aha, this thing worked like a, like a charm in this particular market. You know, in this, you get, you get the curve fitting, right? And because, you know, backtesting by definition is backwards looking, right? And we have no idea how something is going to look or if it's going to behave moving forward. So generally, the more inputs, the more variables, the more filters, the kind of more fragile that entire result is and the less resilient it is going to be the kind of the future market behavior because we just don't know. And so the main thing is what I like to do is more focus on, you know, if I understand kind of number one options and how to behave, I have some inkling of how a certain strategy should behave in various market environments. And I more use mark, I use the back test to kind of confirm my hypothesis to say, hey, yes, the, the, the strategy generally did this when a certain you know, kind of market happened rather than using the back test as the creation of the strategy, right? So I start from having a strategy I want to try and thinking about it and really reasoning out how it should work based on actual knowledge, math, right? You know, options, math and Greeks and everything. And then using kind of the back test to backfill and just kind of build some conviction and get some context about, okay, it did in fact do what I kind of anticipated generally. I think that was incredibly well said. And I agree with you completely where back testing is really like, in my opinion, it's a tool in your toolkit, in your toolbox, but it shouldn't become your strategy. And my personal feelings are that People from, you know, speaking to a lot of people and from experience, I think that traders rely way too much on backtesting where they think that because something has worked in the past, then it has a high propensity to work in the future. And I went to Cornell and one of the, my favorite classes was taught by Tom Gilovich. And he did a research study about like the hot hand theory where people, if they hit like a few shots in a row, then people allocated and misattributed and they thought that that person was hot and that they had a higher propensity of hitting their future shots. I think that people need to recognize that as human beings, we have a propensity to look for patterns and then try to attribute them and try to predict the future. And oftentimes those patterns can be false. And I do believe that traders, if they want to be successful in the long term, 
they are responsible for their decisions and they shouldn't completely rely upon the backtesting. Backtesting can be a tool, but you also have to dig into the data and ask yourself when you have so many small occurrences, you should ask yourself whether this is statistically valid or whether this is the mode or the median or whether you're looking at the mean. Because oftentimes we tend to disregard the mode, which is the most repeated. But if you have a situation like we've had over the past week, where the NASDAQ has dropped around 10% and the S&P has dropped around you know, 8 or 9%, then you have to make sure that you try to mitigate that from happening. And you have to make sure that you look at um, that one, the numbers are statistically valid and also which numbers you're looking at, whether it's the median, the mean, or the mode. So yeah, backtesting, I'm all for it, but just don't rely upon it too heavily and make sure that you implement and you use that data. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't free you from the, from the decision-making process. And it doesn't free you from taking ultimate responsibility and making your trades. Yeah. And one other thing um, I want to point out is sort of an aspect of backtesting that some people don't realize, you know, with uh, tools like eDelta Pro, you know, off-the-shelf backtesting software, where they make it so easy to just crank out 100 tests, change this parameter, add that filter. And one thing you have to remember is markets are changing over time, right? Even literally the price of the S&P is changing over time, right? For example, and your account is changing over time. And the reason that makes a difference is, you know, if we're talking about a one-year test, maybe not so big of a deal. But if you talk about like a multi-year test, the thing that you have to realize with kind of these backtest software is they typically do something simplistic like a fixed delta test or a fixed one contract test, right? So you have a fixed sizing that's arbitrary that can be completely different relative to your account size, relative to the size of the market as time goes on. So that's going to skew the results in practice. And what I normally do is I do something called a longitudinal study where you take kind of that raw backtest data. Now, if you're going to create a back custom backtest engine, build it yourself, you can address this. But if you're going to use um, these kind of off-the-shelf softwares that have very simplistic testing, they do give you like an output of the log. But you want to kind of change up the sizing and make it true to life because you have to look at the size, you know, maybe you're doing like a put selling strategy and the credit received, right? You need to make sure it makes sense, right? If you're going to sell, you know, $100, the $100 relative to your account size is going to change. So depending on account size, I'll kind of change it up. So things, I change things dynamically with respect to the account size, with respect to the market. So that actually makes it like the test reflects how you would actually trade through that time. And not just some static one lot over and over again, which might make no sense in, in the context of things. So just something to keep in mind, just showing that backtesting is, is nuanced. You know, it's not always about, okay, run a thousand tests until I get the best scenario and let's just go with that. You know? that. That's fine. Yeah, I agree. All right. The next question for, for question number three, what are your thoughts regarding having trading rules vary based upon VIX levels? So. I think conceptually this makes sense. Personally, I don't do it. And I'll say why. Not that it's right or wrong, but if you think about the last question on the back testing, right? And we talked about filters, like people talk about, okay, I'm gonna do risk on if you know this moving, you know, uh, average uh, crosses over this, this other moving average is like a risk off signal. And you know, VIX or I think volatility levels, those in, in, in and of themselves can be sort of a risk on risk off signal. 
So it makes sense, you know, because we know volatility is mean reverting and volatility does certain things at different levels. It makes sense that you can kind of bucket it into these different regimes. And, you know, if you do just a simple filter, even volatility, you can split a back test or any kind of strategy into like, okay, if I ran it in high VIX, low VIX, you're going to see different qualities and behaviors. At least you'll think you will, because people always want to see patterns. Um, so it kind of makes sense. And, and just because certain strategies, the way they're built, don't work well in low VIX or high VIX. So if you have the conviction to do that, I think it can make sense, right? Especially with something like volatility, because we we all do believe there is certain quality, you know, characteristics, right? Depending on what market does, I don't think you can reasonably predict if the market's going to go up or down. But depending on where VIX is at, I think you can reasonably say, is it going to go down or up, right? So that mean reverting behavior. So because of that, and I think there is sort of mathematical proof of that behavior, we can, you know, presumably bucket your strategies into kind of high VIX, low VIX. But personally, I just still prefer simplistic things. So I, I tend to do strategies that, you know, I'm going to run no matter what, um, for better or for worse. Um, but I understand and see kind of the value and the reasoning behind that. My thoughts on this are, this is one layer of subjectivity that, and this is going back to nuance. And this is why I, I think that there should be some level of subjectivity in trading because it is actually quite easy to trade options during periods like right now when the VIX is trading at about 30 or 35. The problem is that if you traded too large and if you traded during times when the VIX is trading at around like 15, then there's a high probability that you're being forced to defend the majority of your positions that you put on during periods of low VIX and that you don't necessarily have a lot of buying power in order to take advantage of the volatility expansion. And, you know, that begs the question, some of you might be thinking, okay, well, the VIX usually spends the majority of its time between 15 and 20. So am I advocating not trading at all when the VIX is between 15 and 20? And the answer to that is no. But what I am advocating is using significantly less buying power. So for example, you could potentially use like 20% of the of your account size when the VIX is trading between 15 or 20, or perhaps you trade vertical credit spreads because during times when the VIX is low, then buying that insurance is actually really inexpensive. If you buy that insurance now when the VIX is trading at 30, 35, then it's going to cost you significantly more than during times when the VIX was trading at around 15. And you also need that insurance when the VIX is at 15 because it will protect you against the volatility expansion. The other thing that I like to do during times when the VIX is trading low is I will go further out of the money to protect myself against volatility expansion. And I will also increase the days to expiration because that would actually make the trade worthwhile. When the VIX is trading at 15, even using portfolio margin, if I trade something farther out of the money, then I'm not necessarily collecting enough premium to make that trade worthwhile unless I increase my DTE to, you know, 60 to 90 days. But um, I definitely believe that it's worthwhile for at least traders to consider um, altering their strategy during times when uh, the VIX is low relative to when the VIX is high. Makes sense. The, um, The next question is, 
whether you believe that traders should be comfortable with some level of subjectivity in their trading and whether this can potentially improve entries. For a little bit of context on this, um, for example, let's say you look at like the recent trading range of, of a stock. And then when you say that, okay, this stock, like whether it be Amazon or Apple, or you know, even like the S&P, since I, I believe you like to trade like, like SPX and SPY, if you would look at like the recent trading range and then um, by selling a put when the SPY or an individual stock would be at the low end of its trading range, then that could potentially reduce your risk. And additionally, because there's higher implied volatility in that specific underlying, then it could potentially enable you to collect more premium as well. What are your, what are your thoughts? So um, I think partially it comes down to the personality of the individual trader. Because for me, and you'll hear this a lot, a lot of it comes down to conviction, right? If you have a strategy, but you don't have the conviction or the confidence to execute, it doesn't matter anyways. And so yeah. for me and people who follow my podcast, they know my strategies are, are kind of based on the same type of mechanics, right? Enter 15 Delta, 90 TTE, do it every day. Now, obviously that doesn't mean the trade's going to be the same all the time because as volatility goes up, 15 Delta is going to get further from the money, for example. So there is some kind of self-regulating aspect to the strategy just as a function of markets, right? So um, the decision for me um, is just to follow that strategy. But discretion, like, I think, it, I, I do believe there's people, if you have the skill or the knowledge or the experience, I don't know, maybe luck where you can time or have a better entry or whatever it is. But for me, like, I think it helps me simplify things and not kind of, second guess myself when I follow a strategy that's kind of more mechanical, there is a tiny bit of discretion. Um, but I think part of it also comes down to, I know some people, it may hundred percent mechanical may not be suitable. Like people like to have that feel of being in control or at least have the illusion of control, right? Because they feel like there's some engagement or if I, oh, I saw this pattern or I feel like because of this, that this is a good entry and you can own, if you can own that decision and have the conviction and still have, you know, be able to manage it and have the proper risk management, like you, maybe you feel better about that trade rather than just, oh, I feel like, um, you know, for, for a mechanical trader, they might be like, oh, I feel like they're just blindly entering regardless of the market. Now I, I get that thought process, right? Um, so part of it comes down to, again, the personality of the trader. Now, whether or not you can truly add edge or you know, extract more profits being discretionary, uh, probably, you know, there's been people that have done it or who have shown it. Now, again, is that luck? Is this just outliers? Hard to say, but I know that is extraordinarily difficult. And I don't know that I have the experience to, to do it consistently or feel like I do, you know, using discretion. So, you know, I kind of choose to just kind of be more mechanical, at least mostly. So for your for your zero DT, I think you sell SPX options like using portfolio margin on like Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Right, right. right. So, so did you did you open a new contract yesterday and, and are you planning on selling zero DTE tomorrow as well? Or do you yeah, have market well, I mean, volatility? For, for, for zero DTE, I mean the, the exact entry changes depending on the, the time of day and everything. But yeah, I mean, we trade the same amount of trades every time. And, you know, people talk about avoiding 
FOMC days or when VIX is a certain amount or if they think the market's going to be trending or whatever. And no, we just do as many trades as we can, let the probabilities play out and so where they have. And so, I mean, it's worked, right? And it's just something where you don't have to, you know, there's making a decision and it works in your favor, great, right? Nobody cares about that. It's more like you make a decision and it goes against you. Number one, do you have the wherewithal to correct it as in pull the plug if you need to instead of get, you know, getting smashed if your trade's moving against you? Or, and number two, when you do have to take a loss, like how do you handle that, right? It, it, there's a cost to everything, right? There's a, there's a reaction, action, reaction, and there's a, there's a consequence to those decisions, not just in your PL, but in your, in your psychology as well. Yeah, I, I agree. I I also do think that if it if it were me and and I, instead of being like ninety to one hundred percent objective, I would probably right. want to be like 70 objective. Um, if it were me and I was running like a zero DTE, I probably wouldn't feel comfortable with it, considering that if the SPX opens up down tomorrow, like, like 50 points, given that volatility is actually pretty high right now, you're probably not going to see like a tremendous increase in, in VIX. But if you're selling a put, then you actually might see a relatively large loss in your put option that you put on previously. And then additionally, because the VIX is high, if you wait for, you know, one or two days of affirmation where the market shows you that it's stabilized a little bit, then the VIX still might be trading in like the high 20s or low 30s. And I think that you'll still be able to collect premium. You probably won't get stopped out or you might get stopped out. I mean, who knows? But I, I just think that it increases the probability without having to go through the stress of constantly monitoring the market during times when the market is irrational. Because I believe that the market is pretty much rational you know, 85, 90% of the time, but it's at those extremes because the market aggregates so many different factors, including human behavior. And we do know that human behavior is not rational. That's kind of like the study of psychology. Right. And I think that at the extremes, both on the euphoric end and then also during on the fear end, those are times where I kind of would prefer just to play defense and not be like overly aggressive. Because like I said before, the VIX can be trading at like 35 or 40, which means that you can still collect a significant amount of premium. And then you can wait for one or two stabilization days. And the VIX is still going to be trading at like the high 20s, low 30s. If you look at 2020, uh, you pretty much had elevated VIX for the entire year. And yes, the VIX didn't hit like, you know, it hit, I think, 84 in like March 2020. But it was still trading in like the 50s for like one or two months after that. And you know, you can collect a lot of money while also reducing the risk. So, yeah, I guess I, I believe that there should be like a little bit more subjectivity as opposed to, um, you know, just wanting to as opposed to just like like having it be completely objective. Yeah, I mean, it's a spectrum, right? Like you mentioned 60, 70 percent. I'm probably more in like the 90, 95 percent mechanical. But, you know, again, it's up to personality, temperament and kind of the strategy that you're running as well. The, the next question is what I've listened, I think, to about like 80 or 85 percent of your podcast. And I was wondering, uh, what are your thoughts regarding like selling calls 
as like, especially during times like, like now, because personally, like um, I'm stuck in like a PayPal position and my strikes aren't that bad. But part of the reason why they're not bad is because I've been able to collect a significant amount of premium by selling calls and then rolling down the put side. So um, like, what are your thoughts about, and even if um, I know your, your thoughts on rolling, and I think that's actually the next question, but for selling calls, especially if we endure like a protracted, like grind down market, what are your thoughts of selling calls and potentially combining that with selling something that's very far out of the money on the put side? It's going to depend on the strategy. I think if you're doing something with rolling and kind of managing and following positions long-term, it, it can make sense because you're collecting that larger pot of premium, which gives you more room to work with you know, the break-evens and everything. But you know, followers of my podcast and kind of my trading style know because we're using hard stops. Now, granted, when we use a hard stop, we're going to enter again anyway. So it's kind of like a roll. It's just, it's a little bit different. And so specifically for the type of trading that I do, I just, I haven't really found anything that works in terms of the calls because remember when you're selling options, it's, it's inherently a negatively skewed strategy, meaning for a particular entry, your losses are bigger than your wins. Right. So because you're, you're selling your credit, the premium is your defined profit, right? And but your losses is kind of undefined. So you know, when people talk about, for example, using selling calls as a hedge, that doesn't make as much sense to me because you're you're giving yourself a little bit of hedging potential, but still you have upside risk now. So uh, conceptually, it just kind of goes counter to the rest of my strategies. And, and again, specifically because of kind of the hard stop mechanic that I tend to use. And because long-term, right, I'm trading longer durational 90 DTE, longer term, market tends to trend up, right? Now, yes, you mentioned selling calls in a bear market, but it's like, you know, I'm not big on technical analysis. I don't I don't think I can call when is a bear market, when is a downtrend or whatever. So I can't guess. So from the experience, from my testing, from my own limited experience of trading calls, it, it just has done me more harm than good. Um, so mm-hmm. it, it, does, it does a lot of factors, not saying that's necessarily always going to be wrong, right? <laughs> it's, it's, we don't know until afterwards, obviously, whether or not it was right or wrong to do it. Now, if you've been selling calls this last three weeks, you're doing great, right? But who knows? Like, if the, now, I don't think the market's going to do like a V-shape like last year this time. But, you know, it, we know that there's kind of these huge, you know, bear market rallies. And, you know, you can get your face ripped off selling calls too. And because of the, the, the skew involved, like for the same delta, same credit calls are generally closer to the money than puts are. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a more of a structural aspect of why i think they're harder to work with um but you know and th- that's why that that's kind of the culmination of why I, I have my opinion on on calls it just for me and the way i do it it's harder to harder to work with i think um i would say that selling puts encompasses about 75 or 80 percent of my strategy i definitely believe that there's a time and a place to play the like the the negative delta and, and the call side um, you know, during times when, like, if Tesla goes up like 20% in two days, which has happened, I think, like three times, three or four times over like the past year or so, I think it happened like January 7th and 8th of like, of 2021. And it also happened like, just like a few weeks ago. Um, you know, you can then sell like a really far out of the money call and receive a decent amount of premium. Additionally, even yesterday on January 24th, um, there was a situation where 
I was short like a 2100 put on Amazon and I was considering simply rolling it forward by one month, keeping the same strike and then selling like a 3350 or a 3300 call on Amazon that expires next week because there is an earnings announcement and then using that premium from the call and from extending the duration of the put side to then actually buy like an $1,800 or $1,900 put to provide additional insurance and also significantly increase the, the buying power, um, you know, in, you know, of, reduce the buying power reduction of that specific right. trade. So when you were saying about, I don't necessarily think that selling calls will be able to provide you with a significant hedge. Like perhaps it'll provide you with a small hedge if the market decreases like two to 5%. But where I do think it has value is during periods of high volatility or when you think a stock is oversold, you can actually collect a significant amount of premium and then you can use that premium on the call side to then buy an option as protection to significantly increase the buying power in your account. And I also think that when you have a situation like last year where the market is up 30%, I think it's fair to say and fair to predict um, that the market is not going to go up 30% this year, just because statistically, it's extremely unlikely to have it go up 30%, you know, two years in a row. So I do think that at least considering selling calls during a year when I know that last year is independent of this year, but just statistically, I, I just don't necessarily see that the market is going to go up more in which case I think having the ability to sell calls and having that be a tool in your toolbox could potentially be a little bit beneficial. But I definitely would 100% agree with you that it is very risky to sell calls, especially during times after um, the market might be potentially oversold, because during those times, you're going to sell calls that are closer to the current market price of the stock. And the market does have a tendency to go up extremely rapidly. We saw that happen in the third or fourth weeks of March, 2020. And a lot of people who sold calls, they did end up getting their face ripped off. So be very careful selling calls, but I do think that if used correctly, then it could be something that, that adds some alpha while also it could reduce your risk. Yeah, I mean, when used correctly, I mean, that, that's the key phrase, right? And that yeah. actually kind of ties back to the backtesting, the trading with high or low VIX rules, then with the discretion, it always comes back to if you're going to do something that is quote unquote situational and because mm -hmm. it's the right time, you're adding discretion, right? So again, if you can follow through and own the decision and apply the right risk management because you can't expect it to always work, right? So if it works, great. If it doesn't work, you have to be able to to fix it or manage it properly, and not just be like, oh man, like like you said, market shouldn't go up thirty percent, you know, three years in a row, and it's going up. I mean, who knows, right? But like, just in those situations, and like, okay, it can't go down, or sorry, it can't go up. So you know, hold on to the calls, and and then you, you know, market's going up, and you're getting blown up. So you, you just have to, with all decisions, you gotta own up to it and be prepared to manage it when you need to. The, the next question is regarding rolling. Um, your thoughts on, like, just if you can quickly recap, like, your thoughts on rolling for, for my audience and then 
Um, I think actually when we when we spoke earlier, we actually both kind of agree more than disagree on on rolling. So um, if you can provide like a, a quick recap of, of like your thoughts about rolling positions. Yeah. And just to define, I mean, rolling, you can consider rolling up, down, out. And and I think most of the time the when beginners think about rolling, they're talking about kind of generally a position is threatened and you roll out on time, but same strike. And obviously that's one of various permutations, but that's kind of the one that tends to be gravitated towards for beginners because that's the so-called keeping the dream alive, like same strike, rolling out on time, hopefully for credit, but you're at the same strike. So on that, and it, it depends really on the type of strategy you're running and sizing. Sizing is, is the most important aspect because when you roll same strike, you, yes, you bought yourself some time maybe, but you're, you're, you're kind of in the same position in terms of the size of the trade. The probabilities don't really change just because you, you, know, you took one trade off and put on another. So things can compound very quickly. And I think if you don't know what you're doing, what, what beginner traders tend to happen is you know, they only have enough buying power because it's a small count for like two or three or four trades. And if they all get, you know, all of them moved against them, they roll all of them. And sooner or later, your entire buying power is used up, right? So that's not the right application. Rolling, if you're talking about you know, this kind of rolling or same strike, it's probably mostly for advanced traders who have a very well capitalized a very large diversified portfolio of you know, 30, 40 positions and maybe one or two or three of them, they can afford to kind of hold on to that risk. The rest of them, either they're taking winners or managing or closing out. And so it, it's a lot harder than most people realize. Um, and so that that's just, that's just for start. I mean, there's so many th- things to get yeah. into, but that that's the important thing a lot of people don't realize, I think. My thoughts on rolling is, the first is I I can't remember the last time I rolled to the same strike because in general, if I'm rolling, it's more for like defensive purposes. And if I'm going to roll and extend duration, I'm then going to use that premium and roll down the strike. And I'm saying roll down because usually it's puts that end up getting challenged um, because I sell mostly puts. But Generally speaking, if I let's say I roll forward in time and I collect like an incremental for example purposes, like $2 of premium in time value, you can actually allocate that premium towards reducing your strike price by sometimes like $5. So in effect, you're actually reducing your strike by $5 or $500 per contract, yet it's only costing you $2, which is the amount of premium that you would collect by rolling forward in time. So I really think that traders are doing themselves a huge disservice by rolling forward using the same strike. And I get it. Like you want to capture as much premium as possible. But in my opinion, rolling is something that is very stressful. Having challenged positions are also very stressful. And your primary objective when you're selling options is that if you have a position that's challenged, I believe that your primary objective should be to get rid of that position get rid of that position as quickly as possible. And from listening to your podcast, I actually do agree with you. I don't necessarily think that closing out at a 3x credit receive is a bad strategy at all. And I think that even though it will reduce your win rate and long-term it may or may not 
increase or decrease your profitability. I think that one of the primary advantages of closing out at 3x is that it reduces the amount of stress that you're going to incur and the amount of stress that you're going to endure. And I think that many people, they underestimate the the amount of stress that they that the losses hurt about three or four times more than the gains feel good. And as long as you can protect yourself and protect your emotional investment and reduce your stress, I think that that alone might actually make it worthwhile to simply close out your trades at 3x credit received instead of going through the hassle of rolling. Yeah. And another thing is this idea of win rate. Uh, I think in the beginning, people get fixated on that too much. But what you want to focus on is the expectancy, right? Actual PL, right? Win rate itself is kind of meaningless. And the idea of rolling, meaning you, you never lose. I mean, look, I get it psychologically. If you want to consider, let's say you've rolled 10 times and you want to bucket that into one quote unquote trade and just say, oh, I had a 100% win rate. I mean, fine, you know, but really mechanically, remember a, a, a trade of roll is closing one and opening another, like, literally even on paper when you rolled you close one so you you lost right so but it doesn't matter like whether or not you have a 100% win rate 50% win rate 60% win rate all that matters is is your account up or down right because win rate doesn't you know put money on it you know put money in your bank right expectancy is and so rolling or you know rolling out up or down the credit it's not something to be so fixated on it's more about the exposure. Like I said, do you want to be out of the position? If you don't like that trading any longer, get out. If you like the trade and you want to be exposed to the underlying, but you should adjust, right? Rolling out, rolling further, rolling from into the money to out of the money. You're adjusting the delta. You're, you're putting the position back from one that has no extrinsic, very little theta to one that has more extrinsic, you know? And the idea that if you somehow rolled same strike that you didn't lose. And if you've rolled out of the money, you did lose. I mean, it, it doesn't really make any sense because once that position moves against you, your account's going down, your net leg is going down. You're, you're already losing money, right? When you roll or you don't roll, yes, there's some cash movement in terms of like that debit or the credit, but your account balance in that moment doesn't change. There's no magic. You don't auto all of a sudden get money back or your PL doesn't pop because you were able to roll and you got a credit, right? So look at it not so much as trying to manipulate the win rate for win rate's sake or thinking that you're not going to lose because you rolled because really you want to focus on the exposure, the amount of risk you have on the table and what kind of risk do you want to have moving forward and on a day-to-day basis. And that's, you know, rolling as a tool you know, up or down, in or out, that's about managing, managing your portfolio, managing your exposure, managing your risk. And it's not magic. It's not going to all of a sudden make you win more or less. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. And I think that for me personally, one thing that I can improve upon is trying to take ego out of the equation because I do sometimes get too caught up in win rate. And um, yeah, I definitely agree with you. I do. You know, I, I also agree with you regarding not adding more risk to a trade. Um, sometimes I do that. Um, oftentimes I don't. Like, for example, I will sell calls as opposed to like selling additional puts. However, I will say that I think overall rolling has been a net positive to my PL 
And the reason is that generally, if a position that I sell a put on is challenged, for the most part, it has a tendency to be oversold at that moment. And because it's a large cap company with a strong brand, it usually tends to bounce back. And similar to what you were saying previously, where you have to be comfortable, or rather you have to be careful selling calls, because sometimes when something is oversold, it has a tendency or it may rip back up and rip your face off. I think that the same logic applies to simply rolling forward and reducing your strike price. And as long as you're not adding risk, and as long as you still have a high conviction in that trade, and you don't think that there are better opportunities for your capital, then I do think that it's okay to reduce your strike price and add duration to simply give yourself more time. But at the same time, I do believe that for the most part, even if it does increase your PL slightly, I do think that the majority of traders should actually have a stop loss and close out the positions that get challenged. And the primary reason for that is I think that rolling inherently is very stressful. And I think that saving yourself and trading a little bit of money for a reduction of stress overall is a net positive. So yeah, those are my thoughts regarding regarding rolling. One th- one thing to keep in mind, I think um so you know people talk about survivorship bias and the fact that you're sitting here and talking about it, I assume that means you made it, you survived, you, you didn't blow up because it, it's, it comes back to sizing, right? It, if you're, everyone has different risk tolerance. Like nobody wants to go through a 50, 60, 70% drawdown. Like maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but if you held on and you came back, you're going to be like, wow, I made it, right? Like it, it, the PNL is there because it came back, it worked. But if you trade too big or you give up or something, get a margin call, you blow up. Like there's probably hundreds of people that did the same thing, but traded too big and the outcome wasn't the same, right? So it's it's just every portfolio strategy, there's that point where when you stress it enough, it doesn't come back. So the fact that you came back, I mean, either through luck or you were sized properly or whatever it is, you can say that and you had that experience, but there's thousand people who it didn't work out right so but it just also, comes like the sizing yeah. just to play devil's advocate though you don't necessarily you don't eliminate the tail risk from closing out at like 3x credit receive like you still have that gap risk yes that's true overnight yeah. risk. so and, so and, just to be clear like you know when the past few days where like the s&p would would open down like 90 or something like that you're not you're not com- completely immune because just because you have a stop loss or a stop limit right. loss of one number, that doesn't mean they're getting filled at that number. And that's that's where it comes down to, do you want to, do you need that secondary backup? That That's where that kind of black swan hedge comes. And that's why, you know, what's interesting, there's so many pieces to take it, you know, to look at. It, it's not just like a, it's not a simple decision, right? There's a lot of moving parts. So number one, how big are you trading? Number two, what your mechanics are? Number three, do you actually, like you said, no amount, no strategy is going to be completely immune from that black swan risk. That's why if you're going to trade in size, either way, rolling or no rolling, if you trade in size, you're going to need something or you should have something in case there is that kind of account 
obliterating kind of event, right? Like I said, none of us are immune to that. And that's why I do have a black swan hedge, right? Even though I don't believe it's ever good, nor do I ever want it to be needed, right? I don't want there to be a 20% gap or whatever, um, but just in case. And so, and again, that's just one piece of the puzzle, right? And it's not, and again, coming back to regardless of what you're trading, how you're trading, rolling or stops, and it just comes down to the size and whether or not it's appropriate to have. Because if you're trading cash secured, no leverage, you can roll <laughs> however long you want. It's never going to go to zero. You know, there, there is no black swan can happen. And most likely, you know, maybe you have a 50% drawdown and you just wait for it to come back. But once you start trading leverage and the notional, you know, becomes 2x, 3x, doesn't matter, like you said, right? Everyone's subject to the same thing. Yeah. Do we have time for one more question? Yeah, sure. Okay. What are your thoughts about using SPX or SPY versus individual equities? That gets into the black swan risk, actually, because with earnings and outlier events with underlying symbols, yes, there's more volatility and more juice in the options and rightly so because of the risk. So if you're going to run a, you know, again, if you're, if you're well capitalized and you're able to trade multiple underlyings, and so that one outlier doesn't blow you up, I think it's okay. But generally, for me, it's just less of a headache to deal. You know, number one, you don't have to worry about earnings when you avoid individual symbols. You don't have the idiosyncratic risk, and you can just focus on one product, right? And for example, like you know, the Theta Engine strategy that I trade, right? I'm just doing SPY, SPX. It's almost a kind of a pseudo rolling strategy. Yes, we have stops when we get out, but when we get stopped out, we just keep entering every day or whatever it is. It's almost like a pseudo, you know, I'm always recycling the capital. Capital is always being put back and taken out. So it, it, sometimes it's just like packaged differently, right? But it, it uses the same kind of concepts. Um, but that's kind of by choice. And then I get like, if somebody wants to, and that comes down to the discretionary versus mechanical right if you if you like to quote unquote look for opportunities or oh this earnings is coming up or something happened here the iv spiked and you know kind of like what tasty trade and what tom always says about like sell any high ivr underlying and just be product, product agnostic it's like i mean that's okay but realize that there's risk and the difficulty that comes with that territory and if you make that choice to engage in that you have to be ready to deal with the consequences so, you know, that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in, in the middle between you and, and Tom. I think that Tom pretty much encouraging, encourage, and I don't want to put words in his mouth, but um, telling people just to sell like high, sell equities with high IVR and indiscriminately sell them and keep like 80 or 90 positions on. I just would never be able to handle that. And I think that because you do have correlation risk, especially during periods of a pullback, I think that that would cause many people to either blow up their accounts or to just get so stressed out that they would eventually end up quitting. So I'm kind of in the middle where I will only sell options. And yes, sometimes I do sell options on SPX and SPY, but I primarily target large cap liquid underlines with strong brands like Microsoft or Amazon, um, you know, even something that has relatively low beta or that's slightly quote unquote recession proof, like a dollar general or like a DLTR. But on my watch list, I really only have like 10 or 15 securities. And precisely for the same reason, as you mentioned, it just makes it easier 
and it kind of like standardizes it. I'm not really a big fan of, you know, just scanning based upon IVR and then indiscriminately selling. So I guess I'm probably closer to you in that respect and that line of thought than I am to, to Tom. And um, I guess um, just this is the very last question regarding um, what do you believe that many that many traders should be like long spy or queues instead of leaving uh, cash available to withdraw uh, instead of holding cash when using portfolio margin and then margining off of that long equity position? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, obviously the answer from having heard the podcast and people who listen to my podcast and everything, but obviously it depends on your timeline and your risk tolerance. But, you know, if you believe the market goes up long-term, which I do, then I think it makes sense to at least have some portion allocated. And I think what you were alluding to with the portfolio margin, this is the return stacking concept that I've, I've mentioned. Now you don't have to have portfolio margin, but it works a lot better uh, on portfolio margin, equity takes a lot less buying power. You can have, you know, a hundred thousand and spy and it really only uses like $10,000 of buying power. You have the rest of the buying power to sell options, do whatever you want. And this idea of combining passive returns and active returns, I think makes sense. Again, it's, it's yes, they're all correlated, but it, it diversifies the need to do all the work yourself, right? If, if, if we believe the market can do five, six, seven, ten percent long-term passive. Why don't we go get that few percent? I mean, and you don't have to allocate fully, even even half allocated, quarter allocated. You you're letting the market do some of the work. There's some benefits. It's more tax efficient. You know, if you're not buying and selling, those gains are unrealized. There's dividends. I mean, like I said, there, there's. If we believe the market adds value over time, why not capture some of it with no work? Right. That's that's kind of the idea. Uh, I agree with you 100%. And that is something that I was not doing in the past. And I will actually start implementing that once I believe that the market is stabilized a little bit. Um, because I think that that's an amazing way to, um, to get some like some passive returns while also juicing those returns by selling options. Um, the only caveat to that is because you are going to have some correlation risk by being long that equity or long that, ind that index, then I would probably, uh, for at least, well, at least for myself, I will actually trade a little bit less and reduce the number of contracts, you know, maybe by like 10 or 20% in total. That way, if the market corrects by 20 or 30%, then I'm not experiencing like a quote unquote double whammy by taking losses on the long equity position and also having to defend. Um, the short option contracts. I will add one last thing. And um, I don't know, I didn't get into this on my podcast. I kind of did on the return stacking episode, but this isn't so much about necessarily long spire, long QQQ. It's just about the idea of stacking returns, right? If you're going to have a core portfolio and leverage that margin to trade options, once you have that idea, you can take it and run with it you don't have to do SPY only, right? There's risk parity portfolios. You can blend stocks and bonds, TLT. You know, there's dual momentum strategy. There's different things. The idea is just having a core portfolio and being able to run options in parallel. That's the big idea. It's they don't have to be, you don't have to be all equities or all options. You can do both and combine them. And, you know, people say there's nothing free in life. That, that actually is the only free money. Portfolio margin is the only free money. It's free leverage. Now, I'm not saying 
do huge leverage and do something risky and blow up your account. That's what I'm saying, right? When I'm talking about leverage, I'm talking about the fact that you can marry these two strategies and that's just the way the margin works. And you can essentially have two things running in parallel that can be very inquiry. If you decide to do some kind of, you know, stable portfolio, like, like I said, like a 60, 40 or some kind of risk parity or something, it is in fact possible to have that core be not so correlated to your option strategy. So just something to think about, just take that idea and run up with it. Um, I, I think that's kind of the powerful concept and the takeaway from all that. So you're saying like allocate some portion to equity or an index, but additionally to like TLT or something that's not correlated. And then because you have essentially free leverage from using PM, then that could juice your returns and also reduce your risk from just an option from a short option only portfolio. Yeah, just right? the idea that you can put the options on top of that. And that, that was just one example, because I'm not like I said, I haven't looked into that myself. I'm not that well versed, but it just different ways of modeling portfolios and different cores that, you know, apparently have been shown to have very little correlation with the market and yet still have pretty strong returns. And th there's a whole world out there you can explore in that aspect um, uh, that you can find online. All right. I, I really hope that you guys found this incredibly valuable. I, um, I reached out to David because I felt like combining the heads of the two Davids, the two David dragons <laughs> right. would be able to be incredibly valuable for everyone. And I'm going to post this on, on, um, you know, on, on my social media and I'll post a link to David son's podcast and uh, his Facebook group as well. And I highly encourage you guys to check him out. His podcast is amazing. And whether you agree with my, with like what I encouraged a little bit more subjectivity or David's more objectivity, the primary purpose of this talk was just to give you something to think about and something right. to consider. So irrespective of whether you agree with me or, or him or, or both of us, it's just something to think about. We're just sharing knowledge. So we hope that you found this valuable. Yeah. And based on feedback, you know, maybe we'll, we'll line up to do this again and with other questions sometime, but uh, thanks for reaching out and I appreciate the time. Looking forward to talking again. Thank you guys so much. Take care.